2: We can talk about grief for the Queen and and what it means for the establishment, but we can't talk about grief for First Nations people and other colonised nations and what they're feeling, you know, having suffered through what Britain has done to their nations. And
3: I think that we need to get really better at balancing that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. In Catherine Murphy's absence, you're with me, Sarah Martin, and today I'm joined by... Josh Butler, Amy Ramakis, and
1: Paul Karp.
3: And we are doing one of our famous Ask Us Anything podcasts, mainly because everything got thrown into turmoil by the the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, my God, did the Queen die? I know. You may not have heard, but um, if you're just tuning in, there's some breaking news for you. Um, You've sent us a lot of questions, which we're really grateful for, and obviously there's a lot to talk about, even though Parliament isn't sitting this week. So to kick us off, um, Amy, we're going to ask you a question from... Charlie Prince, who asks, what will it cost to become a republic and what has to change? Well, that is a very broad
2: question, Charlie Prince. Um, In terms of what has to change, probably society's attitudes first, where we're ready to have the conversation uh, and then, you know, go on from there. Obviously, you know, there's the material changes of we wouldn't have a Governor-General anymore. We would have whatever, you know, the model decided that we would have as the head of state. That doesn't necessarily change the government. I mean, we've seen what's happened in Canada and other, you know, parts of the um, Commonwealth who have gone, we don't want to do this anymore. We haven't seen huge changes in their government. Probably mean that the coins would change, which would maybe upset, you know, Peter Dutton, who seems very exercised over which royal face ends up on our currency. Uh, How much it would cost? Well, I mean, it costs a lot to have the royals, uh, you know, come to Australia. Uh, We pay for their travel. We, uh, you know, have to front up what we've seen with these protocols, like we're paying for that. So I'm not sure if we can put a dollar figure on it uh, at this point. But I think that there are costs to both models. And anything that needs to change will come out in the wash whenever it is that Australia is ready to have this conversation.
3: Yeah, and I wasn't sure whether Charlie was asking about the emotional costs, to be honest. Um, But in any case, next question, and I'd like everyone can jump in on this as well. So, Pin Conway asks, why our Republican PM has suddenly become a piously observant griever? I find it distasteful. What's in it for him and his government? Also, media coverage... Colin, what's the <laughs>
1: <laughs> big robe energy there? <laughs>
3: yeah, huge. Uh, what's in it for
2: Anthony Albanese? I mean, I know you guys all have like uh, views on this as well, but I'd say that it's just people don't like talking about uh, things when someone is, is dead. Really? Like, that's pretty much it. I asked this question myself on social media a couple of days ago, and everyone was like, Could you just wait until the Queen is buried and then we could start having this conversation? And I think the Prime Minister is just very aware that there is a potential political backlash if you start going, Yes, let's start talking about our future under the monarchy. Even though other Commonwealth nations are doing it, Australia just is a little bit more conservative and not ready for it yet.
0: Yeah, I think he's trying to not give his personal view on everything. He's trying to be the Prime Minister of Australia following to the letter, uh, what was set down in protocols written decades previously about calling Parliament off for for two weeks and having a a, a national day of mourning and and, and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I think he would be slammed for it. I mean, we saw today Peter Dutton was grasping at straws, attacking Andrew Lee for, you know, trying to change the $5 note and and whatnot. And, And those attacks would be directed at the PM if he did anything less than what he's doing now. But to all those frustrated Republicans out there, I'd just say it's two weeks of mourning. We know that there's not going to be a republic referendum this term because they want to have a referendum with a voice to parliament for first Nations people first. so really, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and if you're, if you're that upset about two weeks of mourning,
1: consider you know
0: h- h- how much longer that campaign has to go mm. Josh, what are your thoughts?
1: Albanese, actually got asked this question himself. And I can't remember if it was in a press conference on a radio interview this week, but he actually was sort of asked, you know, why aren't you talking about the Republic more? And he said, well, I came to government promising, you know, sticking to conventions mm. and, um, you know, orderly governments and all those sort of things that, that he said, like all through the campaign it was, you know, safe pair of hands and safe change and, and, and all these sort of things. Like I think Paul sort of hit the nail on the head there sort of saying like, well, and, and Amy as well sort of saying, you know, this is not really the time to sort of play politics. You know, he's come to office trying to be the, the sensible, Safe guy who's you know going to sort of gradually progress things along along the way. I don't know what benefit there would be of of, mm. of him coming out and, and going like, oh well, you know, yes, time for a republic now. You know, the queen's not even in the ground yet, and let's talk about a republic. I think it, it will be a bit crass on a number of levels, but like it wouldn't, I don't think, advance anyone's agenda. But mm. you know he's not that kind of guy to, like, he's not, you know, Adam Bant or one of the Greens, you know, coming out and, you know, jumping around on this on the first day. I think, you know, this is a discussion that's going to be had for a long time and things aren't going to change in the next two weeks. So Mm. why, why not?
2: I just think, though, that that just on that it would be, so frustrating to be a First Nations person at the moment. You can't raise anything about, you know, the history of the monarchy and colonisation in this country without being jumped on about how you're being disrespectful. And I obviously can't speak for First Nations people, but I just think that we put so much on on one side of the ledger. So we can talk about grief for the Queen and and what it means for the establishment, but we can't talk about grief for First Nations people and other colonised nations and what they're feeling, you know, having suffered through what Britain has done to their nations. And I think that we need to get really better at balancing that and Anthony Albanese has tried by not criticising anyone who has raised criticisms, but Mm. we do need to have space in the national discourse. And at the moment, we're just clamping down on everything.
3: Mm, Absolutely. Okay. So it doesn't mean we can't talk about these things. And we'll we'll come back to a question about the Republic in a second. But um, David Lamb also asks, is it reasonable that Parliament is suspended for two weeks and that so much of our national media is occupied with wall-to-wall coverage of mourning for a person who, apologies for the bluntness, meant nothing to our society? Couldn't our energy and attention be better spent?
0: I think they just needed to prepare people better for for that this is what would be involved. If there was some forewarning that when Queen Elizabeth II passed on that Parliament would be shut down for two weeks, I think people wouldn't have been scratching their heads as much and it wouldn't have felt like a sort of discretionary decision that they made. Uh, Beyond that, I just suspect there's a lot of... Frustrated Republican sentiment behind that.
3: Mm. Lisa Johnson and Josh. Perhaps you want to kick us off with this one. But Lisa Johnson has said, has pointed to the Roy Morgan uh, poll released this week, saying Australians prefer to stay with the monarchy rather than be a republic with a president. But a republic doesn't have to have a president. There are other models. Is a parliamentary republic an option? And how would that work?
1: There's a really interesting piece in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning that Osman Faruqi wrote, and it was about um, you know why. Do you know younger people not necessarily? You know, aren't we jumping all over the republic idea? The the younger sort of millennial, you know, Zoomer kind of generation aren't that interested in the republic. Probably less so than maybe like older millennials or the Mm. generation older than millennials. And I think it's one of these things of just going, well, what does a republic really mean for a young person who is far more concerned about cost of living and housing and the environment and climate change and all these sort of big picture things? Like, you know, I I get all the you know, I I consider myself someone who's you know thinks why not why not a republic, like if you're going to rank all the burning issues that there were in the whole country, I don't think changing us to a republic is the number one on anyone's sort of mind at this point. Mm. This is part of the discussion of that Labor sort of wanted to, you know, wants to start having by appointing Matt Thistleweight as the Assistant Minister for the Republic of going, well, let's have these discussions about what it, it could look like at some point down the track, like who, like what would the title of people of, of the of the head of state be and, you know, how would it, you know, run in the parliament sense and who, you know, all, all these sort of like facet details. I think, you know, that's sort of what Matt Thieselwaite's role basically is. And I'm, obviously they've kind of kept him, you know, in, locked in a dark box for the last couple of weeks. I uh, don't think I've really heard from him very much for, for obvious reasons, but that's, I can guess, sort of part of the reason they, they've, they've brought... Him on into that role to start having those discussions.
2: I mean, I was just going to say, like, part of the reason I think that we still don't really, you know, want to move on from the royals is because the royals have an amazing PR machine and they've done so much amazing work with, you know, the Fab Four, which would be Caden, William, and Megan and um, Harry. And then when that split, it was all centered on, you know, guess if you you'll have Charles, but after that, you get William, and then you get George, and how cute are these kids? And it's been this huge PR thing. It's basically started since Princess Diana died to sort of say, you know, your monarchy is still here for you and how good is stability? And I think that message has really come through because they are treated as some of the most famous people in the world uh, and we don't actually examine what it is that they mean and what the cost is uh, and and what it means for Australia and its independence. And I also just wanted to go back to, because there were a couple of questions about media coverage that, you know, we Mm. should probably touch on because we didn't. I think Partly it's because it it was, you know, a shock but that a shock that everyone had prepared for. So there was like a, when the Queen dies, we're going to roll out like absolutely everything. But also I think it's it's a symptom of um, modern media not necessarily catching up to, the, to modern media, if that makes sense. Like with things being online and on digital now, everyone is used to reading something in terms of rolling coverage. Like it's not a novelty anymore. But legacy media, whenever something huge happens, we just immediately... immediately... Immediately blanket the rolling coverage because we figure it's something that everybody absolutely wants to watch and listen to and and read all the time. And uh, we probably overegg it a little bit, although, you know, The Guardian did pull back, I think, on Sunday and was like, okay, you know, it's enough now. And we get that you're interested in other news. Mm. But that first couple of days and other websites and media organisations are still doing, you know, the blanket coverage. The BBC is basically following the queue. To see the queen lying in state, the queue is something special. No. The queue is yeah. the queue is quite. I'm very interested in the queue, not so interested in like what's happening around it. But um, I think that people were just kind of like, you're interested in this because the queen died, but people have moved on.
0: Yeah, on, on the media treatment, and I, I did miss that one. Um, the issue is that for the, the queen's funeral, there is one aspect that it is it is mourning, it is grief. But there is another aspect of it that it is, you know, the pomp and, and circumstance and showing off um, the institution and the continuity, and you're part of this bigger and uh, and inspirational thing. So there is there is a private purpose to it, but there is also a bit of a propaganda purpose to it. And Republicans are legitimately frustrated because. If they do anything to point out that that secondary uh, reason that we're that we're getting all of this, they get attacked as politicising. You know, th- this 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 poor woman's funeral, um, but they can see that that is that that is what is happening. But I I do think the criticism of the media has been overstated. I mean, 96 hours after uh, after the death, ABC News Breakfast had a great mix of stories. It had the Pakistan floods. It had you know, Stuart airs could be coming back to New South Wales cabinet. It, it, it like other things, other things are being covered. I think people are just giving expression uh, to that double standard that that, that they can't raise political points and taking that out on the
1: media. A couple of those questions have sort of, you know, insinuated that like, oh, it's only the media doing a certain way, like ignoring other stories and that sort of thing. Like, you know, we talked about it a bit before, but like, you know, there has been sort of, you know, some discussion in Parliament House about like, you know, whether there's been edicts from, you know, certain officers up high to tell their staff to not put out stories and to, you know, not engage in political attacks and that sort of thing. So, like, the normal sort of churn of, you know, press conferences and media releases and reports and all those sort of things that come out of Parliament House normally, like, they just haven't been. Like, people haven't been seeing press conferences on their TV. And it's not because, like, we're ignoring them. It's because they're not really happening.
3: And, you know, I think it's also interesting that, you know, you can tell from the number of clicks that stories are getting that there was enormous interest in stories about the Queen in those initial days. And obviously news organisations are also responding very much to read a, rate of demand. I think once I watched the Corgi video, I thought it was like post, like on Matilda's <laughs> Corgi video, which was actually very funny and very good, and I encourage everyone to watch it, but um, I, th- I felt like that was the limit for me. Okay, let's move on to other things, because um, obviously if the Queen hadn't died, we'd be in the middle of a sitting week and we'd be talking about the Integrity Commission, and there's a couple of questions about that. Um, Tom the Tabby Cat, I don't think that's his real name, <laughs> asks, uh, what do you make about Albanese's shift of rhetoric and speaking about the timing for the Federal Integrity Legislation, both walking back delivery this year to simply introducing the bill, and and comments setting up a preemptive blame. Paul, do you want to kick us off with that one?
0: Well, I think he was adjusting expectations because. Uh, in the election, there were two formulations used for the promise. One was that we'll introduce a bill this year and the other was that we'll legislate the Anti-Corruption Commission this year. And for a few reasons, they've had to readjust expectations. The delay of, uh, of 10 days um, of Parliament uh, to, to, for the bill to be introduced because of the Queen's death, crossbenchers signalling that they're going to amend the bill, Jackie Lambie uh, still upset about the staffer cut, signalling that she might push the issue into, into next year. So you have to adjust expectations. That's the reason for for Albanese saying that the, the real version of the commitment was to introduce it this year. I'm not sure that's allowable. If there's a higher commitment and a lower commitment, should we hold them to the higher commitment Or does he get off just because three days before the election he phrased it this other way? Mm. I think that's an interesting debate.
2: This issue was kind of my fault because, like, on Sunday looking for non-Queen news, I was like, I wonder what's happening with the integrity bill because Parliament's been delayed and that kind of just kicked everything off. But I think it is an interesting question because I think that there is probably, you know, a lot of understanding if they don't pass it by the end of the year because the Queen died and it did delay things and I think what the crossbench is saying and that it's better to have the best bill rather than a rushed a rushed one is something that I think that most of the public can definitely understand. Uh, and I think that there are concerns that the committee which is reviewing the bill will be rushed to try and meet an, what is, a, a, in effect, an arbitrary deadline that, yes, the government did set. But if they actually just explained to people and said, OK, like, this is going to take a bit longer, but we are still aiming to have it up and operational by mid-next year, I think people would understand that. And it's not necessarily the political death spiral they're treating it as. You know,
1: can I be a the contrarian there? Aren't we basically getting all the sitting days back that we would have lost this week? In two weeks' time, like when, it's not every single day, but they're they're sitting at the end of next week for a couple of days for condolence motions, and then the next week they're sitting for I think was it three days or something. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting most of the days back, but the inquiry is starting two
0: weeks later than it would have, oh, and okay. there are other yeah, there are right. other there are other causes for delay, like that the crossbench want to amend it to include oh, whistleblower.
1: And, and, and if that's the thing, like if, if they sort of came out and said, okay, the reason for a delay is because we want to get it right, and there's been some you know interesting new perspectives that we've taken on, and da da da. they did through the climate bill where, you know, obviously there was some politics there and it made it seem like the crossbench got a win when, the, you know, Labor was very happy with what the changes were. Like, if they could just come out and say, like, okay, well, yes, we said by the end of the year, but, like, you know, things have changed since, then and we've got some, you know, some new folks in the in the parliament who want to talk about this and they've got some good ideas we want to investigate a bit more. Like, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Like, no, I
3: completely like, agree. I know, I'm, I know I'm asking questions today rather than, like, no, putting no, it in, in my two cents, but I feel like we're so habituated to outrage, like, particularly after 10 years of... of of the coalition that we're kind of, our brains haven't quite yet adjusted. And I feel like, you know, if it's not legislated by the end of the year for something that's due to come into effect in July, like who cares? Like I kind of feel like Helen Haynes made a good point that the committee needs to do its work. We want to have a good piece of legislation. We want to have an effective, um, you know, anti-corruption body. I kind of feel like this is much ado about nothing, personally. But
0: yeah, ten days is not the end of the world. A, a few months pushing it into next year, given its powers are retrospective anyway, is not the end of the mm. world. But the problem is that they they made two different commitments, and it was a loose end. Mm. And that higher commitment gave the crossbench some leverage to to push it into next. Next year and then say that that was not meeting meeting the, the promise. So mm. that was the loose end that needed to be tied off.
2: Yeah, 100%. They just addressed it rather than kicking it off by just saying, oh, no, no, no. I said we'd put in the legislation, yeah. you know, like yeah, yeah, we yeah. wouldn't be talking about it now.
1: Yeah. So one final point, like like you said there, Paul, about like, you know, if there's two commitments, you should hold onto to the higher commitment. Like there was... They wrote it down in a press release. We were legislated by the end of the year. Like This wasn't like a flippant, oh, you know, I, I got my, my my facts muddled up in my head in the heat of the moment in like a combative interview or something. It was like a press release that would have gone through however many, you know, flax and, and highly paid media professionals and stuff, like a whole CHQ campaign headquarters would have seen that and they've said legislate. So I think, you know, I think there is like something to be said about like, you know, it was an election promise. You stick to the promise you make. And but if you don't control thing, the
3: but... Senate, how can you ever promise to legislate something anyway?
1: Like, don't there's a, also don't make such a concrete promise, then. like, don't make a promise <laughs> also, if you can't meet it. Also, there are there are
0: other ways it could get through. I mean, Lambie mm. has said delay, but Pocock has said it can be improved and passed this year. There's still the possibility the coalition um, could support it, and that would make you know Greens and mm. Haynes amendments irrelevant. So that like there there are there are other pathways for this.
3: Yeah, I kind of feel like it's going to get legislated this year anyway, and. Um... We'll have to find something else to get upset about. OK, Sophia McGrain says, I've had numerous encounters on Twitter telling me that it's been widely reported and therefore fact that the Labor government are drastically whining about their commitment to an effective federal ICAC. I've called bollocks. What's the team's view? I mean, we haven't seen the legislation yet, Sophia, so we don't really know yet, but Paul?
0: Well, Helen Haynes' uh, bill in the last parliament was certainly more ambitious in a few respects uh, in terms of whistleblower protections particularly, uh, but what Labor has... Um, consulted with the crossbench about is completely consistent with the principles they put out. Um, before the election. It's just that crossbench parties have ideas to make it even stronger. So, for example, the Greens want it to have uh, the scope not just to look at entities that contract with government but also any entities that might corrupt government decision-making, including political donors. So I don't think Labor have um, watered down uh, their ICAC model. I just think that we're seeing a debate that was always going to play out where, um, you know, there were were some gaps between the six principles and the Haynes Bill and there were parties that were always going to ask for more. Uh,
3: Josh, I might get you to kick us off on this one, um, given you've written a bit about it this week. So Sue James says, since being sworn in, the ALP seems to have started work on a whole range of long-term problems. Are they actually thinking about COVID behind the scenes and we just aren't hearing about it? Or do they really think that voters will join them in the myth that it no longer exists and it can be ignored from a health perspective?
1: I don't think the government's ignored. Ignoring it, even you know, even yesterday, national cabinet they extended the um, isolation um, payments again for people who who don't have sick leave, who who can't work. Um, you know, they're obviously spending millions and millions of dollars on you know extra hospital funding and vaccines and and, and all these sort of things. You know, researching the long COVID and that sort of stuff. I, I think it is just. When people sort of ask these sort of questions, like, the, the, and I'm someone who, you know, triple vaccinated, very, you know, supportive of lockdowns last year and all those sort of thing, just for those caveats. But like, when people ask these sort of questions now, like, the the question I think of is, well, what 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 do you think we should be doing? Like, should be should we, we be going back to lockdown? Should we be going back to um, pubs closing and you know, ten people in a shop and that sort of stuff? I'm um, Granted, like you look at statistics now and like more people have died in Australia this year of COVID, I think, than, i would be happy to be fact-checked, I think more people have died this year of COVID than the last whole pandemic combined. Like more people are dying in aged care than ever before. And we're sort of at this point now where it's like, well, yes, more people are dying and it's what, what are the, what, what do we actually, what can we actually do? I mean, like the government is putting all this money into long COVID research. And there's obviously still a lot of talk about, you know, ventilation in public spaces and wearing masks and all this sort of thing. Like, you know, people in shops are still wearing masks. Like, um, obviously a lot of people on the government side are still wearing masks, like in the chamber in, in parliament and that sort of thing. An interesting thing that I sort of remarked on a little while ago was like, when they reiterated the advice a few months, ago, in, like June, that was like a big talking point that people should be wearing masks inside as well. Um, a lot of government folks made a big point of publicly wearing masks all the way around Parliament House, and they don't really do that anymore, even though I don't think the advice has changed. So um, I'm not really sure what, what we could be doing at this point. And, it sounds, and I don't mean that to sound callous or anything like that. It's just I, I don't really know what you what interventions you can do in 2022 at this point when people kind of just want to have their life to normal, mm. I, I, I'm actually sort of big open question there. I don't really know,
2: Amy. What are your thoughts? I, I I would agree with that in that it's it's really difficult, you know, in 2022 to start putting in in mandates again. I would say that mask mask mandates indoors, particularly in vulnerable areas like shops and places where you're going to come across people who are immunocompromised, just trying to live their life in an ongoing pandemic. Like the kindest thing you could do is to put on a mask to help protect those people, because it must be frankly terrifying just going to the shops at the moment. Same with public transport, just those services where it's not just you. And I don't think that wearing a mask, you know, in those areas is is that huge ask. So I think that is something that we could do. But I think that now that we are moving to where, you know, even the um, World Health Organization is saying that the end of the pandemic is in sight, But with the caveat, if we keep putting into place measures to stamp down on infections, and I think the issue for Australia is we're going to have a summer where we're going to not have to worry too much about COVID because COVID doesn't tend to pop up that much in summer in terms of new variants and stuff. Meanwhile, we're going to see new variants in the Northern Hemisphere that are going to arrive here you know, when we start our winter and then we're going to be hit with it again. And are we ready? And so I think that that's what it's going to come down to. Can we stop it enough now to be ready for what is coming for our next winter?
3: Paul, I might throw the next question to you because I know this has been a um, matter of, um, you know, a, a personal campaign of yours. But Ponderou, with a lot of numbers after it, says it's been reported that the CHOs, the chief health officers, didn't agree with reduction of ISO. So who is making the call? Why are we not pushing on transparency in national cabinet when it comes to the health of our citizens?
0: Well, sadly, the version you get in the communique and the preamble uh, and and the questions at the press conference are it as far as National Cabinet um, transparency goes, because although the Albanese government has improved the process by not pretending that National Cabinet is a subcommittee of the the Commonwealth um, Federal Cabinet, uh, they're just blocking FOI requests with um, another exemption, which is uh, that it might harm intergovernmental relations. There hasn't been a, a huge amount of improvement uh, in that. And yeah, I mean, people had questions about modeling and uh, the advice about cutting the ISO period. And um, I think that the basic answer is that decisions are informed by health advice, but it's more and more a political calculation because it's you know what will what will people cop? uh, is more and more political, um, judgment than it is a medical one. So
3: Yeah, and it's interesting. Obviously, Paradise has been pushing for the isolation period to be scrapped altogether and we know there's a state election coming up and I'm sure that's going to be up for debate at the National Cabinet meeting at the end of September, even though the pandemic leave payments are extended as long as the isolation periods are in place. It's, it's not clear to me after this week's National Cabinet how long they're going to keep those isolation requirements in, in place. So that's going to be the next, the next uh, point of contention. I reckon. Um,
1: Can I just jump in on one little one on on that? Like obviously, and and Paul's obviously far better place to talk about this because it's one of his pet. Things. I mean, the, I think the, the question asked, you know, why aren't people pushing on this? Like, the, people are. Paul pushed on it. There was a good question from um, one of our colleagues, um, one of our radio colleagues, Amanda Kopp at the Press Club when when Anthony Albanese was there a few weeks ago. David Crow and the SMH um, have written that yeah. the kids, national cabinet secrecy
0: persists as well.
1: It, yeah. It, yeah, nothing's really changed. I mean, you know, Anthony Albanese sort of has quite a lot to say about national cabinet secrecy, um, you know, in opposition and through the campaign, um, and it seems like he's sort of sort of gotten. In now and is, you know, has seen the benefits. Obviously, yeah. there are political benefits to leaders being able to discuss this sort of stuff very freely and robustly in national cabinet and all those sort of things. But, you know, I covered a lot of this COVID you know, stuff quite intricately over the last couple of years and, you know, might be an unpopular answer, but there was some more, like the Morrison government put out a fair bit of modelling. They put out a fair bit of um, documents and obviously when it sort of politically suited them to, you know, release uh, data and graphs and tables and numbers and all these sort of things. But there was that sort of uh, material was released sometimes and the, the modelling, you know, or, or whatever advice was given to the National Cabinet a couple of weeks ago to reduce the isolation period, the government on numerous occasions has decided to not give that mm. out. They say that some some sort of formulation of it's secret or it was only oral advice or there are no documents or something like some sort of formulation of that to say that we're not going to give this to you, even though I think there are big public interest in knowing what advice informed that decision.
3: Yeah, and a lot of that information has been scaled back. I know we were getting you know, the daily vaccination mm. figures and things like that, which is now I think now on a weekly basis. The case, so, yeah. case numbers, yeah. I'd just say very
2: quickly on the political point though, the um the I think one of the issues that we're not seeing but probably will see if they decide to scrap the pandemic pay uh, is, is the unions, particularly in this like time of low wage growth uh, and a focus on you know, casuals and the cost of living. I think if they do scrap the pandemic, leave pay, you're going to see quite a big campaign from the unions just saying, well, what are casuals mm-hmm. supposed to do? Uh, because as Sally McNannis has pointed out, the idea of doing the right thing, staying home if you're sick, depends on whether you get paid or not, because your bills don't stop just because you're Getting ill.
3: Okay. Final one from Jack Kerouac. Do
1: you think that's a real one.
3: <laughs> God rest his soul. Um, <laughs> is the opposition failing us? Like, what are they doing to hold the government to account on climate and federal ICAC? And should the media be pursuing them on this? Thank you, Jack.
2: <laughs> Who wants to take we're, this one? We're run?
1: a bit dumbstruck at that not we?
2: Well, I just think, like, I mean. The media is taking them to task by pointing out the fact that they are being deliberately obstructionist or removing themselves from the debate completely on climate, on IR, on absolutely anything that we're having a national conversation on at the moment. I mean, the first few question times when Parliament sat was about the CFMEU uh, and just things that, like, I don't think people actually really cared about, given what we know that cost of living is rising. We know that there is a lot of issues going on. We know that, like, you know, the climate bill was like you know a huge symbolic point for Australia and they've decided well hey we don't actually want to be part of this conversation. I'm not sure what we can do short of pulling Peter Dutton into the stocks and just screaming at him you know for 24
0: hours straight.
3: So it sounds like we think the opposition is failing on one on on certain levels.
0: I think on the National Anti-Corruption Commission they they're waiting to see the legislation. Yeah. So I think there's a chance they could be constructive there. They're not being very constructive on on the voice They're demanding more detail when there's quite a lot of detail out there. Um, I'd point people to a, spe- a, a speech Peter Dutton gave to the Minerals Council last week or the week before, where he both scaremongered about the voice by suggesting that it might practically uh, uh, veto a- a- agreements that uh, minerals companies would have with um, local Indigenous groups, which is not a function that it has. Uh, and on climate policy, he basically said, well, we're going to need nuclear because you can't firm renewables without nuclear. The, the coalition are supposed to be reviewing their climate policy, in, including um, whether to include a nuclear component, but he's front running it so hard that he, he's he's already out there announcing you know, that you'd have to be an idiot if you didn't come to the conclusion that nuclear is the solution.
2: Which is something they ignored while in government.
0: <laughs> well, because it's very expensive, you know, Chris Bowen says, and it takes until 20, you know, it takes another 20 years or something to get running. And
3: you their need a carbon re- price for it to be effective. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, their own review that
2: they did while in government found exactly those points. It's just it's absolutely ridiculous. You, For a strong democracy to work, you need two strong parties actually, you know, arguing the toss and trying to make policy as best as possible and cover off as many people as possible. And this plan by them, just to be you know, deliberately obstructionist or just play dead and go back to the Tony Abbott era of, you know, 2014, where this is how, like, you know, you'd be in effective opposition, it's it's actually driving me insane. Like, it's I'm actually at the screaming at the television, just stand for something point. Uh, mm. And it's not going to get any better, I think, in the near term.
1: Yeah, on that point, I mean, like, I think we've said it a few times in previous podcasts maybe, but like, you know, it's only been a few months since the election and I think they're still stumbling around trying to figure out what they want to do and what they stand for and what they're actually trying to do really just throwing Mm. stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks like you know obviously Dutton's seems to be sort of going all in on a bunch of culture war stuff like the five dollar note like who um and Susan Lee's putting out all these bizarre tweets about you know Anthony Albanese being Kermit the Frog like I think there's a a real sort of range of of stuff happening here and they don't really seem to be have a real cohesive sort of narrative set up of what they stand for and what they're trying to be other than you know we're not Albo sort of thing um yeah so maybe that's something that they come back after Christmas and got some mad master plan but who knows
2: I mean like the most exercise they got in the parliament was over whether one of the greens mps was wearing a tie or not I mean like mm. is this the standard of opposition in the in this country at the moment like it is so ridiculous like get your shit together stand for something work out what your policies are do your election review actually go talk to your constituents and I don't know come together with some sort of plan of how you
3: would make the country better well, look, I am pretty sure that Peter Dutton li- listens to the Guardian <laughs> podcast um, frequently, so I'm sure he'll so be taking of, our advice. Atlas, yeah, you tell absolutely. Um, unfortunately, folks, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for sending in all your questions. Um, you, you've heard from the best in the business today, and we hope you will tune in again. Take care, everyone.